That's the honest answer. Thank you for being honest. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr., and I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. Hey, what's going on, family? Uh, we're back at this thing, season three, episode one. Guess who's back? <laughs> <laughs> it's Courtney Russell here with the beautiful Emily Brocker and our amazing guest, Bobby Lefebvre. Hopefully I said your name correctly. Don't, um, don't come get me. I am so blessed to be here with you guys. We're so blessed to be here with you, sir. And um, hopefully we can get some more knowledge as we push conversation. We, we increase the spaces that we can um, cultivate freedom and liberation for all. So let's get to this work, man. Season three. <laughs> Bobby, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for the invite. And we're going to introduce Bobby here in a second, but I'd love to just hear from both of you. Like, what is something that is uh, kind of inspiring you as you think about the fall? What What's drawing you forth into the fall this year, 2021? I think for me, it's always, it's just the the metaphor of it all. You know, I think that fall is the, the idea that things are changing, they mm-hmm. transition, it's a it's a birth and a death in a lot of ways, and so for me, it's just getting into that as a as a way of seeing the world and, and making those adjustments and letting things go and letting things kind of become. So mm. that's that's what I'm most excited about. Oh, nice! That's beautiful. Everyone will find out Bobby is a poet. So if you're yeah. like, "Wow, that was really beautifully <laughs> put," he's so thoughtful. Yes, we're gonna hear more about that. Oh, you, Courtney. Um, well, mine is definitely not as eloquent as that. That's a, gr- a great question because it's kind of hard as of late to think of something that's really ins- pushing me and getting me happy, just given where we are in the world, honestly. But what really inspires me is possibilities. The work that, that Emily and I are doing, a possibility to, to meet very interesting people like Mr. Bobby and just push this thought. Um, to be honest. And so as I work, it's coming increasingly hard to smile, to find joy in this um, and what we're doing. So, so I, that's, that's the honest answer. Thank you for being honest. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. So we're going kind of along that line. We're going to have a conversation today with Bobby about radical imagination and you know, coming out of this this year and a half, going on two years, that's kind of rocked us all. He has brought people together around this concept, and he. I'm just curious. I'm curious to hear from him around radical imagination because there's a there's a need for that right now. We've been reinventing a nasty wheel for for too long. So let me take a moment here and introduce Bobby. So he is an award winning 
writer, performer, and cultural worker, fusing non-traditional, multi-hyphenated professional identities <laughs> to imagine new realities, empower community, advance arts and culture, and serve as an agent of provocation, transformation, equity, and social change. He has been recognized by so many groups and appeared in so many places. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Huffington Post, Guardian, NPR. He's received the Cesar Chavez Peace and Justice Community Award, the MSU Distinguished Alumni Award, the Chicano Studies Award for Commitment to Education, and honestly, many other awards as well. And he was named an Academy of American Poets Laureate Fellow. And he wrote the award-winning play Northside, which was applauded as one of the most successful local theater productions in Colorado's history. And in 2019, Governor Jared Polis named him Colorado's eighth poet laureate, making him the youngest and first person of color to be appointed to the prestigious position in the program's 100-year history. Just absolutely incredible. And um, in 2020, he was selected as one of 12 National Catalysts for Change Fellows and was tasked with exploring radical imagination for racial justice through artistic practice, which is where we're going to kind of take off. But we'd love to hear, Bobby, how you ended up there, like where, where you're from, your path, your journey. How'd you end up getting tasked with this? Yeah, thanks again for for having me. You know, I've uh, I've been an artist pretty much my whole life. I actually began in the theater uh, when I was 12, 13 years old. Mm-hmm. And then I started falling in love with storytelling and and what it means to convey messages. I started writing, came into poetry through hip hop culture primarily, developed a, an affinity for it, studied it, and now I am kind of that multi-hyphenated identity, right? It's it's something that I do every single day as I fuse these different passions that I have into my work as an artist and cultural worker. And I'm always grateful for spaces like this because I, I think it's it's super important. I think that sometimes when we think about artists, when we think about people who create things, we look at the aesthetics of it and we don't really look at the foundational elements about why we create or what drives us to create. And I'm always grateful when art and poetry are included in central conversations and and utilized as an entry point for dialogue, because Mm. I believe it's important to have artists and dreamers and philosophers and imaginers at the forefront of contextualizing what it is that we're collectively going through, whether that's now, whether that's throughout history. And that's what I do in my work. So when this project kind of showed up, I was really, really excited about the idea of exploring radical imagination you know, and this is like pre-pandemic, we were notified that we were going to be these fellows in January of, of 2020. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and so we were in San Antonio as a cohort meeting, and we were like super excited, ready to get our projects. We were starting to brainstorm what we wanted to do. And I had this idea for a long time of bringing people together to explore radical imagination over the most simple thing, which is a meal, right? We know when we get to a table, and we start to have conversation, things naturally just kind of butt up. So then COVID hits, puts a little bit of a, of a, a wrench in things, right? But ultimately, I was able to host this incredible dinner series and do that through COVID, which actually made it even more special, I think, because being in the middle of that mess as a poet and as, as poet laureate in particular, I feel a certain responsibility 
really, to utilize language and conversation as a tool for social dialogue and a weapon, really, for social change. We watched all of us, you know, having to, to come to terms with things in a very visceral way. And what a better way to impact that than with incredible invited guests over dinner and kind of positing what is, is possible. How did COVID shift the imagination? Like what kind of impact did it have there? Yeah, I think what it did was it showed us what's possible when we have to move quickly, right? And we saw so many things change. We saw processes change. We saw, you know, the way governments change. We saw the way that restaurants and, and small businesses are run. And it allowed us the opportunity in some ways to play uh, with boundaries, to play mm-hmm. with rules, to play with policy, to play with things take a long time to change. And one thing that the radical imagination teaches us is that until something becomes a norm, it's othered, right? Until something is widely accepted, we have a hard time accepting other ways of doing things. But COVID made us be creative in the way that we saw the world around us. And it had us adjust in real time. And we saw large-scale change happen very quickly in a short period of time because it, it was almost necessitated by the circumstances we were going through. Wow. Um, you said something that kind of struck me just now on uh, rules and, and, and me being a rule breaker that I am, you know, um, I always feel as though it's, it's a rule until people in charge f- see that it's not anymore, you know? So radical imagination to me is, is what I do and what I've kind of based my, my calling life around. So to talk to someone else who radically imagines, I'm guessing everything, you know, um, if you radically imagine everything from social justice to what you're going to have for dinner, you know, that's a pretty, pretty freeing life that you have. For me, yeah. everything, everything is a form of art, right? The way we show yeah. up, the way we dress, the way we <laughs> engage. And, and really radical imagination to me is it's the salient ability to imagine the world, our life, our social systems, not as they are, but as they <clears throat> might otherwise be. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's at the basis of everything I do as an artist and a, and a cultural worker. I'm kind of wondering as I listen to this. So I feel like the impact of COVID, I wonder if it's somewhat paradoxical as well, because, and I say the COVID, you know, like the year of 2020, including the murder of Floyd and, and the response there. Like in some ways, I feel like this year has shown us how rapidly we can change if we have to, and has has opened that door to adaptation, how just normal it feels to wear a mask. I remember feeling so upset, like, oh my gosh, my kids are going to be upset by seeing people in masks. And now it's like, whatever, you know, my youngest has spent more of her life in a mask than not. And at the same time, the panic and stress has likely um, put people deeply in their patterns and habits and afraid of change at the same time. And I'm just curious, how do we, how do we navigate that? How do we address our brain's need for security and certainty while looking at, you know, I think about climate change and racial justice in particular, like how do, how do we change our patterns in a time of such uncertainty to create something better, which I do believe that we're all going to fall apart if we don't. I believe that we as humans, we operate on a spectrum, right? So there's always going to be a spectrum of where people are and we need people. I don't know if we need them, but we, (laughs) there are people who are stuck in these certain ways that are destructive, whether that is 
you know, the people who are still dumb enough to be racists and worship white supremacy and all these things that are the root of a lot of the things that we still are trying to deal with on the other side, right? So we need that spectrum in order to like contextualize where we are and what progress looks like. But you also need people on the other end who are pushing all the time, who are are creating new ways, who are imagining new ideas. So that binary that exists, right? Because we still live in a world that that operates in in, in messy and, and unnecessary binaries. It's either you're conservative or you're progressive, you're black or you're white, you're this or you're that. And the further we get to a place where we can deconstruct those binaries and live in the in the mess, the middle, the gray area is the mess, but that's also where the interesting things in life are. That's where the work gets done. That's where the conflict happens. And that is where we need to focus our energy is how do we inch towards something that we can't yet see, but we, we hear in the distance that we feel in our hearts and our minds and in our work. And so I agree, there is a need for us to have some sort of security. Even when your security is not a safe place, you have to dream about what it means to not be in that space. Mm-hmm. And so we have to keep pushing until we get to a place where we all feel free and that collective liberation is something that is no longer a war cry, but it's actually a tangible thing that allows us to all be the best we can be. You just said something that gave me chills and I smiled a little bit and wrote it down. Security. When you come from poverty, you live in a very insecure reality. However, you learn to make that secure. You learn how to navigate those waters. And so the security that comes with your neighborhood, the security that comes with your surroundings, looks a lot different when you're younger and you're just you're growing up and you, you all your friends look like you or the the schools you go to, everyone looks like you to a whole new world in our country where you're supposed to be have escaped freedom. I mean, escaped poverty. That can be so jarring and so insecure that you're back in a state where you're is as if you. You always have to the thing about coming from that, you all have to imagine what it would be like to worry about food, not to have to worry about clothes, you know, not to have to worry about death, you know. So radical imagination in those realms of security looks a lot different for the microcosm of of the person in it versus individuals looking at it, if that makes sense. And so uh, it just really amazes me. To, and, and, and I'm honored to be talking to someone who, who has based their life and based the work around radically imagining the status quo. Well, and we have to do it in a way that is really true to who we really are. Because for so long, I think generations prior who didn't have as much agency, their <coughs> idea of radical imagination was in alignment with whiteness, right? Especially for people of color. To make it was to reach all these benchmarkers that white supremacy has taught us, hey, white people are doing this. So this is what I need to do. That is the pinnacle of where I want to be. So instead of living a life that is genuine to to who we are, who we want to be, for a long time, generations previous, at least in my family, there was an assimilationist idea of the closer we are to whiteness, the more we've made it, right? And now we are deconstructing that and saying, that's actually not the goal anymore. We don't want to be like you. We don't want to do your things. We want to create our own and, and live in a world that allows us to do those things 
without repercussion. And so when we're talking about George Floyd, when we're talking about all of these things that we have seen play out in front of us, we have to be comfortable and confident that this work is, is, is part of, of that struggle, right? It's, it's imagining new things. It's talking about abolition of the police. It's talking about things that are, 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 are seemingly impossible, but very probable should we continue to you know, push for them and, and explain the why behind them. Mm-hmm. Are there circumstances now, I'm just kind of trying to think of this historically and in context that support kind of the breaking down of this normalizing of whiteness as the norm, <laughs> normalizing it as a norm, like mm-hmm. centering whiteness. Is there something that's shifting right now that there's an opportunity to, to decenter whiteness, to center different identities yeah, I mean, I think if we're looking at the way the population is shifting, right? Like we have mm-hmm. to remember that like the global majority is not white. You know, the the global majority is made up of of brown people all over the world. And so part of it is a shift in language. It's a shift in in decentering, I guess even US politics because in geopolitics because I think that for those of us who live here, of course we're going to talk about that. But if we look at ourselves as global citizens, if we make connections to our indigenous roots throughout the Americas here as, you know, Mexican-American, if if Black folks make connection to African countries and the continent of, of Africa and, and realizing that we have kinship there, we are not a minority, right? And so the language that's used to describe us often was intentional. And if we start to reshape language, if we start mm. to center you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color, if we start to use terms like the global majority, we start to shift the ideas that whiteness is the norm. And there is some unlearning that has to be done in that because it's so embedded, especially in this, on these lands that were, were colonized and, and there was a, an immediate power differential that was created. And we've operated in that same structure for so long. So some of it is language change. Some of it is culture change. Some of it is unlearning. And mm-hmm. a lot of it is reimagining. It's building new things. You know, we're, we're hearing a lot of uh, land acknowledgements take place. We've been hearing, it's been kind of popularized over the last 10 years, the idea that, hey, when I have an event, I'm going to acknowledge the land that, you know, the original yeah. indigenous people occupied. But very rarely do we go a step further and say, okay, we can acknowledge the land, we can acknowledge the people, but what does it look like to have conversations about returning the land? Mm-hmm. That's a radical idea because people can't, they can't fathom that that's a possibility. It is a possibility, but we need to start talking about it and we need to stop normalizing the complacency, even within those progressive spaces of, oh yeah, we're going to acknowledge the land and it's going to be a cute little gesture. And I'm going to read this little script, but we're not actually talking about equity or or returning that land back. So there's little things that we can do to start to shift conversations that allow us to see things in a new way that then allow the imagination to take over and for us to, to, you know, have new ideas. Awesome. In that same vein of reimagining, I have a quick a question, you know, mm-hmm. talking to a lot of people um, from where I come from and my white counterparts, what reimagining police, what would that look like to you? I heard you earlier talking about abolishment of the police. What what would that look like to you? If you had it right now, you can snap your finger. What would law enforcement look like? to uh, Mr. Mr. Bobby. Yeah. You know, I think the, you know, I think the, what's the slogan to serve and protect. I think that so much of it, we have to think about what did the police do now? Right. What, how much of their, of their job is dealing with, you know, the things that we think police do violent crime, 
stopping the bad guy, how much of their job is actually that versus code enforcement or dealing with mental health issues or having community conversations. So I think it's about, it's, it's about leaning on communities in a more robust way and trusting them enough to take care of themselves within systems that are not built up for that, right? So when we think about the mental health system, when we think about the social work system, when we think about all of these intersections that policing has sort of taken a primary, I guess, lane in, there needs to be a distribution of money and and resources to empower communities to engage with service providers who aren't the police. So if somebody's having a mental health crisis and the only systemic way that we know of dealing with that is incarceration, is sending a police officer out to arrest them when they're they're not necessarily posing any harm to anyone but themselves, how do we then include mental health professionals as first responders so that we are able to determine what is a, a criminal act or what is a dangerous act yeah. uh, and what is a mental health crisis? So it, it, it's, a, it's a reallocation of funds within the community to address things that are not necessarily needed to be addressed by the police. It's it's striking me how uh, the role of imagination like fills the void of, you know, I think a lot of people when they hear abolish police, it's like, well, then we'll have nothing, you know, then we'll have no one to protect us. But when we can really make that conversation active around like the different, the different world we could imagine, it fills the void. And it's like, oh, right. There would be a, a path forward. We wouldn't just be left with with nothing. And-, and it would be, it would be slow. It's a slow process, right? We're talking yeah. now about whether or not we need police in schools, you know, mm-hmm. is, is that especially in, you know, areas where that are populated by predominantly youth of color, we know that there's a, a school to prison pipeline. So how do we interrupt that? How do we use new ideas to, to recognize that and to, to come up with new solutions that get at the same issue? Right. And so, so much of it is just that it's just, it's mm-hmm. being willing to take chances it's being willing to even some risk and and the freedom to to be able to dream a little bit could you tell us a story or an example cuz i you know in reading about you and doing research a lot of people call you like a cultural transformer cultural maven i'm curious if if there's like kind of a beginning to journey of cultural change that you could tell us? Because sometimes I lose hope that things can change. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I'm just curious about how you facilitate that change. It's it's basically every everything that I do is centered around ideas of power and privilege and who has it and who doesn't and how do we address that. You know, I like to write pretty poems, but I, I also know that there's way too much happening in the world. And sometimes we need those things first, right? We need to fix the things that are the biggest burdens before we can move on. And so I think that artists always create in a space of hope. You know, I think that whenever you're making something, you feel that urge to put something into the world. Art making can be seemingly an exercise in isolation, right? As a writer, I spend a lot of time alone, Mm -hmm. but the idea of, I want this to resonate with other people really drives what I do. And there's hope in that, right? There's, there's, there's the idea that I'm not creating in a vacuum that I can have influence over and on people and that we can create a dialogue through these things that I'm making. So I think in a lot of ways, the artist is an unending optimist because there's something that 
pushes us to do this work. And then the ability for that work to be received is where the dialogue happens. And so I can't want these things for myself and my community and my people and in our world without having skin in the game, without fighting for them, without pushing for them. That doesn't mean that I don't get tired or that doesn't mean that we don't get, you know, there are days where I'm like, why did I choose to do this kind of work? Like, why, why did I choose to like, want to make stuff better? You know, there's so many other ways to like live this, you know, in this world to exist. But at the, at the bottom of it, it's an innate drive that I have that I have no escape from. And so if I wasn't doing this, I would be living a life that was inauthentic. So I think that the idea of change drives me and it's just kind of built into to who I am. And if I wasn't doing it, I don't know what I would be doing, but I probably wouldn't be satisfied. That is amazing. I totally agree with that. You know, you said something that, or Emily said something that kind of struck me as well. As a poet laureate, you have an obligation and a responsibility to create change. A lot of times individuals get those accolades and they rest and then they feel as though I've made it, you know, because it is a big thing. You know, you work hard, you're an artist, you get praised, you become somewhat of an expert and now it's time to really chill and take care of me. And when you've taken up this mantle of hope to live in a space where you're an ongoing, a, a perpetual optimist, that is a huge responsibility because at times that is lonely. When you we turn on the news and you see COVID, Afghanistan, you see racial, um, or you see voting rights being denied, you see all of these things. What is going to make you turn television off, close your computer, and then get back to making your artist smile? What is that that thing right there that you could do? You're right. I think a lot of people get to these positions and they treat it like a lifetime achievement award, right? It, they're like, I'm just going <laughs> to chill. I'm the, I'm the poet laureate. Yeah. Know? But for me, it's like, okay, how can I use my talent to contextualize all of these things that we're talking about? You mentioned, you know, it's not just about what's happening at home, right? Like I consider myself a global citizen. I, I feel empathy and love for people all over the world who are going through stuff, you know, whether that's what's happening in Palestine or what's happening in Afghanistan, we have to align our struggles with other people's struggles if we're looking at collective liberation. And I don't just want freedom for myself and my people. I want freedom for all oppressed people, for all people who are suffering across the world. And so, so much of what I, what I do is I do, I take these things and I try to figure out a way to, to distill them into messages that people can take in, right? And so that's one thing that I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of is that people come to me all the time and say, I was struggling with like, how to like unpack all of this and your poem about Afghanistan, your poem about Palestine, your poem about the hurricane, you know, really help make it a little more digestible for me. So thank you. And if I can do that for people, if I could use art as the primary form of engaging with people, mm -hmm. then I think I've done I've done my job. Yesterday was the two-year anniversary of the death of Elijah McClain, who mm. was killed, you know, here in, in Colorado in Aurora. And sometimes there's just no words, but as a poet, that's all you have is words, right? Oh, and yeah. so you, you're, you're tasked with that. I want to read you all something Great. that I wrote for Elijah two years ago when I saw what happened. Once the, once the footage came out, mm. I watched the footage and I listened to Elijah plead for his life. Mm. And how does one not feel a connection to that? How does the one not 
become angered by that. And I was trying to figure out a way to write something that was in line with his, the way that he showed up in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And he was a violin player and he used to volunteer his time and he would play violin for animals at the animal shelter. And so I wrote this poem for Elijah McLean. It's a short one in parts. One, the violin is not a simple instrument. It is maple and spruce and more, 70 pieces, a body, a soul, a neck. Two, Elijah was not a simple man. He was black and kind and more, many pieces, a body, a soul, a neck. Three, carotid holds compress the arteries in the neck, resulting in unconsciousness. Four, Research shows violinists have faster cognitive processing speeds than the average person. Maybe this is why, in that moment, Elijah tried reason, why he tried humanity, why he tried compassion, why he tried love, why he tried apologizing. Five, maybe Elijah was trying to string his words into a bow. Maybe he thought he could slide that bow across the F-holes of the pig's ears. Maybe he believed their hearts were capable of resounding music. Maybe he thought for a second that the pigs would do their job and police the crime of their gross imagination. So we talk about radical imagination, but I think that we also need to be aware of the imagination that whiteness has created about black people, about mm. indigenous people, about brown people, and how that is still being weaponized, right? Because this seemingly soft unassuming young man was considered a threat. And, and why is that? You know, what is the conditioning that has allowed a young black man to be considered that? And so when I wrote that poem, it's easy to go to anger, but I also wanted to, wanted it to be kind of beautiful. When I think, when I hear that poem, I see the violin, I hear the violin and there's this, there's this contradicting thing happening of the, the music in the, in the morning. And those are the things I try to capture in my work as a, a poet who is invested in contextualizing our collective experience. Wow. I'm needing kind of a moment to let that land because it's that was so yeah. beautiful and so much heart and compassion and humanity. And it was just, yeah, really beautiful. You know, as a, as a doctor, when you, you start bringing in science and, and, and you, you have the interplay with science and arts. Um, I, there's nothing else I appreciate more than that, you know, because you're painting a picture about how fragile life is and how powerful it is at the same time, you know? And so I, I, uh, I can appreciate that, you know, you, Elijah McClain seemingly was not one of those individuals that she, <laughs> was alarming, you know? And so, like you said, what it, was it about him? that pushed someone to do that. Think about, to me, white supremacy is, it's, it's alarmist. It survives based on fear. I'm not going to have what I need to survive, and I'm going to continue to take it by any means necessary. And so as I think about all of the lives that have been just taken away, can you imagine a life where they would not have been really, merely because of fear? Because that's, that's basically, if you, the through line between all of the lives that were lost was fear. You saw someone, they did, in your mind, they didn't belong. 
oh, you, you thought they were going to ha- cause you harm. And I'm going to do whatever it takes because I am backed by a system that I'll be okay. You know, and so it goes from I'm afraid of you, but now I feel less because the system is a place to protect me. Whereas people of color have to live in perpetual fear and just imagine a life of fearlessness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just to me, like, the, the dichotomy of that is blowing my mind right now. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I heard that. Yeah. Emily, you, you have something? I was just going to say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking now of my original comment that I made a while ago in this episode where, you know, because of COVID, we're, we're needing more certainty and how that can restrict imagination. And it just makes me think of the role of fear in white supremacy to restrict the imagination of things being different, of yeah. even Elijah being not conforming to this stereotype. And even, you know, that stereotype is in existence and perpetuated around fear. And I often noted, you know, how white supremacy lacks imagination, but it's just striking me the role of of fear in that even for neurobiology of like constricting us into the amygdala and to the lower brain. And we can't get into the higher brain where the prefrontal cortex has creativity and imagination. Yeah. And that's so much about these dinners that I hosted. So basically what I did was I, I invited some of the most incredible people I know. These are artists, cultural workers, um, medicine people, politicians, you know, all BIPOC and, and I sat them at a table, I had a chef cook for us, and we just talked about these pillars that we created. So we're talking about things like solidarity and liberation and spirituality. And we would have a question, we played a game basically. So um, we had a, a, a list of questions and a list of eight pillars, things like spirituality and you know liberation and imagination. And so the question may be, what have you been taught about abundance? And then we'd have a conversation about that. What is a barrier to liberation? We would talk about that. And then we would kind of figure out where the conversation went and say, what is our avenue out of that, right? Mm -hmm. What does a radically imagined future actually look like in practice? Are these systems in place? Are we navigating inside of them? Or have we created something entirely new? And if we've been created something entirely new, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. How is it? more just than the things that we are constantly trying to tear down. So it was one part tear down, it was one part deconstruction, Mm -hmm. but it was more building something new, right? Because we can spend our energy against something or we can spend our energy creating something. Mm -hmm. And so I think for so long, um, we've been in a reactionary space. Let's react to all these things that are happening to us. Let's, Let's react to the injustice But if we focus our energy collectively toward abandoning those ways completely and not even allowing them to have that control over us, what does that freedom and play look like? You know, Mm -hmm. obviously we, you know, capitalism and the way that our life's set up, we can't just detach completely until we create something new. But until we create something new, we can't detach from those things we're trying to escape. What are some of the things that you came up, you've done four, four or five of those now. We did six dinners. Yeah. Six. Six okay. dinners. So um, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because some of it, and I thought this too, I thought, Oh, what are we going to make? What is it going to look like? <laughs> but to be honest with you, a lot of it was actually a return to the old, mm. you know? So instead mm. of creating new ways, 
let's go back to our indigenous ways. Yeah. Let's yeah. go back to the circle, right? Let's let's reinvent and help evolve what we already know in our in our cultural memory, in our our spiritual memory, in our collective memory, mm. and adapt that to the 21st century. Let's go back to our indigenous ways, but find a way to have them flourish in the new world. So yeah. some of it was creating new ideas and systems and ways of, of, of commerce and, and all these things. But a lot of it was just a reconnecting to the old, you know, right. if, if we listen to indigenous, if we let indigenous people rule, sure. Climate change may be a thing because we're so far gone, but if we, we return stewardship to indigenous ways, it's meant to, to keep things in harmony. Right. And mm -hmm. so that was my biggest takeaway was I thought I was going, we were going to create a whole bunch of new things, but in a lot of ways we went to a return to our traditional ways, which are rooted in collectivism and rooted in harmony of, of living in the, in the, in the natural world. And so that was probably my, one of the biggest takeaways and, and observations that was, was really, really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. There's a, um, I'm forgetting his name. Not Ken, it might be Ken Wilber in the integral philosophy talking about how societies go in these arcs of individualism and collectivism consistently. Mm -hmm. And there you see it in a lot of you know Asian countries right now becoming more individualistic when they're traditionally collectivistic. And so I kind of harbor this hope with phones and technology kind of being the peak of individualism, like having that crumble and return to collectivism is kind of the, I don't know, I, I see it as the only way forward. I, I can't mm -hmm. really imagine a, a trajectory that branches off of that. You know? Right. But it's also counter to the ways that we've adopted it, especially in this country, right? Like yeah. Yeah. capitalism teaches us individualism is the way Pinnacle. to go, right? It right. is. It's the, it's the bar, you know, like the more that we can focus on the me, 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 the I, 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 the better it is. So there's, again, it's a whole lot of unlearning but it's not impossible. And I think that that's part of what drives me is the thought that it's not going to happen in my lifetime. <laughs> it may not happen in two generations in the future's, you know, uh, lifetime, but it, it will get better and we will create new ways that are conducive to more people being able to live their liberated lives, their, 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 their true self, you know, they can show up who they are without any sort of repercussion. Whenever I do something, I like to do it from both angles. I like to think about it very defensively. What if I was in this other person's shoes? So when I'm speaking to someone who has differing views from me, what you just said is very alarming. What would that look like if everyone was liberated? Would you come back and kill me? Would you come around and, and, and give retribution to me? Like knowing, because everyone knows that what they did to end to people of color was wrong. They, they know that, you know? And so if you radically imagine that, white people have radically imagined that too. And that's why they fight so hard to do certain things to make sure that never comes. Because what does that look like on the other side of liberation? Does it look like a Martin Luther King world? Or does it look like a Nat Turner world? <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> like you know, I, I, again, I think I, through the process, we need both. You know, we need both. We need, we need those who are going to use words and we use those, we need those that are going to use a machete, you know? And, mm -hmm. and I think for, for, for the people who are unwilling to relinquish power, cause that's what so much of this is about, you know, white folks, especially in the United States have to come to terms with 
the historical, you know, traumas that their people have imposed on, on these lands. And unless they are willing to concede that power, which there's going to be a percentage of people who never want to do that and will never do that. But as things change and as families integrate and as beliefs and, and systems change, so too will people. And that is a longitudinal process that is going to take a long, long time. And there will be violence. That's part of, of what will foster in new things. There will be people who continue to die. There will be people who continue to defend things that are not honorable. And we have to just have the hope to believe that those people on that side who are in the wrong, you know, I, I really do believe that there are some objective truths in the world and those people who are on the wrong side of that, I think will naturally find themselves out of, of a world that doesn't support that naturally. Right. But it's going to take time. It's going to take fight. It's going to take blood. It's going to take creativity. And that's what makes it impossibly possible, you know, <laughs> and it's, it, there's no good answer for it, but all of it will happen. And some of that too will be they're white knuckling right now because they feel the power slipping from them. I, I, in, a, in a poem I wrote once, and I, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't know if I have it completely memorized, but I say to whiteness, to white supremacy in your rearview mirror, you can see us coming for you, but we're not coming for your head necessarily. We're aiming for the humanity that's buried somewhere in the basement of your heart. So we can come for you in that way. If we need to, we prefer to like talk it out to like, make an intellectual conversation of it. And we're not afraid to fight in whatever way that that's necessary, but we're not coming for you necessarily. We don't even care about you necessarily, but we are aiming to build a rapport with you to help you find your own humanity in your right. own lost ways so that you can live completely in who you are and not feel threatened by, you know, who we are. Yeah. And be liberated from that too. Totally. That loss of humanity. When I do, when I do, you know, race work with white people, I let them know if they don't already that they're that they've been the most, maybe not the most, but they've been duped of their own cultural histories as well. Because yeah. the creation of whiteness allowed them to give up their individual identities to fit into that power structure because power was more important to them and their ancestors than their individual identities and cultural histories were. You know, yeah. so instead of white people going to Peru and doing ayahuasca. They should go back to Ireland or to, <laughs> to Scotland or Germany and find out what are your indigenous ceremonies? Yeah. These, there are things indigenous to the places you come to, from too. You should tap into those and find out who you are and where you came from first. And that may also create a new sense of pride that's not rooted in power that will allow us to share those things in a way that is robust and, and rooted in, in love and not in control and power. Totally. For white people, I feel like going into the past is a, is an act of resistance, you know, against white supremacy that wants to wash that away and think, no, it's just now in the future. Forget the past, you know, Absolutely. and it reconditions. Yeah. I know we're coming to the end of our time here. Do you have some like prompts and encouragements to some of our listeners who may be wanting to explore radical imagination, wanting to explore, you know, pen to paper, some of these ideas that we're talking about today, just wondering. Yeah, you know, I, I do. And, and, and I may need to kind of get them to you all later, but we're actually working on a, a game, a card game right now, a radical imagination card game to oh, help cool. people operationalize these things. I love um, cards. Because, you <laughs> know, stuff. it's part of the process, right? We're talking about how do we 
operationalize this thinking, this way of thinking Mm -hmm. so that other people can adopt it so that other people can practice that. And so when I think about, you know, what that looks like, I want to be able to share that with people so that people can begin to ask these big questions, because if not, we, we get stuck in the same ways of doing things. And even those of us who consider ourselves creative, we don't really allow ourselves the the space to play. And mm-hmm. so I can um, maybe get you all some stuff a little bit later uh, that we can share with your audience in some other way. But um, for now, I would push people to think about their, their thought process and then to exercise doing things that feel uncomfortable in that. So when they're making a decision, when they're thinking about something, look at it from a, a, a perspective that completely makes you uncomfortable. Imagine something, if you're making a decision, if you're, whether it's what you're having for dinner or something far larger about maybe what you're doing with your life and career, think about what it is that you really want and then what you really would want to see and what is a path to get there? What is the connecting tissue between those two things? And that can be something wild or it can be something simple. But to begin to practice and, and to stretch that muscle of imagination, we need to be able to be comfortable in spaces that are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today and putting things on an inspirational note, you know, of like tapping into what we can imagine. And I just really appreciate that. How can people find you and connect with you about your work? Yeah, you know, I'm most active on Instagram. I post poems there all the time. A lot of them are in relation to things that are going on in the world. And that's just uh, my name, Bobby Lefebvre. So that's, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, I would say that's the best place to connect with me. Anybody who, you know, wants to reach out, feel free to DM me there too. I have a lot of conversations with people there and it's it's a cool platform to connect and to, to share. So Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. I I love interacting. And this is exactly what we needed to start off season three. Hope, inspiration, brilliance, uh, creativity, just great ways to start off um, this this next season as we continue down this road of freedom. And so I really appreciate you, appreciate the work you do. And hopefully we get to meet soon and uh, in person and then yeah. discuss. And hopefully I can come to one of those those dinners, man. Like, yeah, yeah, they're, <laughs> they're they're cool. We're we're working on um, putting them together and editing them so people can see what we what we did. Yeah, that sounds cool. That yeah. sounds cool. And you can also follow that page on Instagram. It's called Proyecto Sobre Mesa, and uh, you can see sort of what the dinners look like, who is at the table, and it was it was incredible. But yeah, thank you all for the invitation for for creating the space and for having these conversations. This is part of the way that we begin to think of the world that we have not yet experienced, but long for. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.